Welcome to Aesthetics Mastery, the podcast to help you thrive and raise the bar in your aesthetics practice. I'm Dr. Adam Chong. And I'm Dr. Tim Pierce. Dr. Tim Pierce is a general practitioner, director, and founder of SkinViva and SkinViva Training. And Dr. Adam Chong is a GP, an aesthetic trainer, and aesthetic clinician at SkinViva Limited. So Tim, I uh, wanted to start off by doing a quick shout out to a friend of mine, if that's all right. Um, I've been meaning to do this since episode one, um, and this is a friend that created the jingle for the podcast. Um, I, I asked him just on a whim um, a couple of weeks before we started, um, and within sort of half an hour he'd sent me this, um, this jingle, this little piece of music, and I thought it was great, and we've used it ever since. So his name is Paul McIntyre. I know him from uh, the antenatal group, so when we were all, um, all our wives were pregnant, we, we all met then. Um, he is a freelance uh, video editor, so he's done some work with ITV and BBC. Currently got a movie coming out actually soon. I would plug it for him, but I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> and I've not watched it yet either. Uh, no, I, I believe it's still in the editing phases, so I will, um, I'll maybe give him another shout out in a few weeks. But yes, Paul, if you're listening, which you totally aren't because you're not in the aesthetics world, but thank you for the jingle. We'll, we'll send him a link to this one. Thank you very much. Yeah. I'm seeing him on Saturday, so I'm going to quiz him on this, this episode. So, Tim, I thought it would be useful today to talk about tear troughs, having just taught a course on it this week. Um, it's an area which um, I think a lot of people always ask about, a lot of clients and delegates ask about. Um, it's a really important area to have some awareness of if you're doing a holistic assessment of the face. Um, so, I mean, what, what do you feel about, about tear troughs? Why, why would it be good to, to discuss this today? Well, there, there's, such, um, there, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of tension around the area of tear trough in clinicians' minds and in patients' minds because it's both incredibly important aesthetically and psychologically, but also there are an increase in certainly in the perception of risk um, and possibly in, in some ways it's a more tricky area. Mm. So <clears throat> that kind of combination of a really strong desire to, to solve the problem but also a fear around it generates a lot of discussion and, um, and, and people have, have their opinions on it, which is, uh, which is what I think would be useful to talk about. I think that perception of risk is both with clients and delegates, isn't it? Because you're so near the eye with, an, with a needle. And it's such an unforgiving work. area um, f- in terms of the leeway that you have to 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 make a mistake is there's minimal mm. both because it's a tricky area but also it's incredibly visible you know if you make a if you make a put a little bit too much on someone's the lateral part of someone's jawline you're not you're not going to notice it yeah whereas if you do that on a tear trough it's going to be the, a distraction on their face until you solve it so yeah. that's quite a big a big reason why why people don't do this treatment perhaps as often as would possibly benefit patients Okay, uh, so before we talk about tear troughs, I will just do our clinical tip of the week. So uh, one thing I find that not many people know is that there is a, a little black flag on the needle. So this is specific to the, um, the Allergan needles. And I have to say, I didn't know this either until you told yes. me this morning. So I've educated Dr. Tim Pierce this morning, everyone. I'll just get that out there. Um, so there's a little black flag, um, which you can see. So if you line that flag up, um, it's very small, so you have to look carefully for it. If you line it up with the numbers on your syringe, and then if you get it just right as you're twisting and, and putting some pressure downwards, I'd say about 90% of the time for me, that lines up the bevel with the numbers on the syringe. There is a, a small percentage of the time it doesn't work, and I don't know whether that's because I'm just not screwing it with the right pressure as I'm pressing down, but I'd say majority of the time that really works. And when I've told delegates about this on courses, they found that really useful. 
um, quite quite a nice little tip to know because yeah, otherwise yeah. lining up the bevel can sometimes just be trying yeah, to error, I, can't I, it? Up until now, for the last 10 years, it's been random whether it was right or not. So I was right 50% yeah. of the time. Well, actually, I probably need to see credit someone else then. Was it Ahmed or Sharon? Some, someone else has told me about this. Um, so it isn't first-hand knowledge. But there that's you a, go. That's a great little tip. Thank you, Adam. So, yeah, if you guys want to try that and uh, give us some feedback to let me know if it actually works. This is, on, by the way, on the TSK needles. I don't know if it's true of all, of all needles, but the TSK ones, certainly the ones that come with, um, I think they come with Restylane. I'm pretty sure I've seen them on the okay. Volterra needles. Um, so they're, they're probably quite common. They're a little TSK needle with a yellow or a white sticker on or a silver sticker. And they've all got tiny little, it is a small, small flag, but once you spotted it, you'll always see it. Yeah. Great. Okay. So let's move on to our discussion about tear troughs then. So why do, why do people come in um, asking for treatments in this area? Or how does it actually arise in the consultation? Um, well, it's really interesting, actually. And it's, uh, it's something that a lot of us do to be kind to someone. And I've certainly done it to friends. In fact, I did it to your brother, and I'll never forget the look <laughs> on his face. So um, I hope oh, he listens to this tell podcast. Me. Yeah. He, I'll make sure I he think does. he'd come off nights. I thought he'd come off nights. And I said, oh, Knackered. you know, Dan, you're looking, you're looking tired. <laughs> And, and I remember looking at like his face, he did not look happy when I told him that. And I was like, I was try, trying to be kind to him and say, um, you know, I acknowledge that you're working hard as a junior doctor. It was a long time ago. But the look on his face was, I don't really want to be told that I look tired. And yeah. especially when he, he may not have been tired. I can't remember if he had come off nights or not. Um, but, but I remember reading, because that's one of my, the, the things I think I'm quite good at is reading people. And I could tell he, he, he wasn't happy in that moment. But... Okay. Some people don't have that, and they just keep going, and they tell people that they're tired all uh -huh. the time. And they walk around their offices at work, and they say, you look tired, you look tired. <laughs> and it's driving a lot of business. <laughs> um, because, yeah. because actually what, what, what that means to people, I think, is that their, their ability to put themselves across is hidden behind the fact that they're tired. They don't want that to be a distraction on their face. They mm. want to be able to communicate with people and get their message out, or whatever they do in, in life and not have to hide behind the definition of being a tired person. Mm. So it's quite, it's quite, it's not, not a nice feeling for people to be distracted by the fact that you're tired and tear troughs are one of the key causes of people looking tired, perhaps when they're not. And sometimes it's, it's congenital and you'll even see children with this. Mm. Um, but the association with tiredness is, is the main reason that people come and have treatment. And I think people don't see it as an insult if you say to someone that you look tired it's not it's not like saying you look overweight or something yeah it's one of those things that is just generally said day to day so and and that's fine if they are tired but sometimes yes. they're not and that's yeah. the problem it's a bit like it's fine saying when's it due when someone is pregnant but yeah. it's not fine when they're not pregnant yeah. It's, yeah. It's exactly so what were the causes of my brother's tiredness I, he was a 27-year-old junior doctor. I'm sure he was tired. So um, <laughs> It's not just his pale, pasty but, skin. And but even if you are tired, you don't like being told. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good start. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's true. People do come in, and it's, it's probably the number one thing that people say is, I want to look less tired. Yes. Yeah. I think that's, that's what drives it the most. Um, often they've been covering it with makeup for a long time. Um, and they they may or may not associate with tiredness. Sometimes it's just called dark shadows, or um, but that's for me. It's one of the key things that you listen out for in the consultation is that word tiredness, because then you can tell whether if they have a tear trough, that could be what they're perceiving. Because they don't always ask for it. Often they come in and ask for three areas of Botox because I look tired, and that may or may not be the best solution for them. 
The other thing I notice people do in consultations is they use their hands to sort of pull back on the cheek and around the eyes. And I think some, that triggers for me another indication that actually this may be maybe a tear trough. Such, such a good point. The, it's so hard to turn what we see into words. To describe what you're seeing on your face is quite, is quite difficult, actually, when you think of some of the subtleties around it. And they often will try and show you when they can't find the words for it. And if you watch what they do with their hands, you can get a clue to what they're really perceiving. And that can, that can help you nail exactly what the best treatment is for them. Would it be useful now then to talk about the causes? In fact, before we do that, should we describe what an actual tear trough is for people that are not aware about it? That's useful, yeah. My understanding is that, the, that a true tear trough actually is, is from the mid-pupillary line to the medial canthus, the inner canthus, whereas I think colloquially we always refer to a tear trough as the whole of the under eye area, but actually a, two, a true tear trough is just that medial part is that is that correct um, yes i think that's that's one of the ways i define it the other way i define it is that it should also be in the thin skin of the lower lid and rather than the cheek and sometimes it's quite hard to tell so it's within the thin skin um in the lower lid but also medial to the mid pupillary line and then lateral to the mid pupillary line is actually the ma uh, palpable malar groove yes okay um but often when we are treating it we just we tend to just say tear trough to, to refer to the whole scoop. Yeah, and actually that's that's also worth thinking about because I, I think that realistically, although we often talk about tear trough, on a day-to-day -day basis, I almost never just treat the tear trough. Mm -hmm. So really what we're talking about is periorbital rejuvenation, okay. um, and the tear trough is a big part of that. But mm -hmm. if you're doing holistic treatments, it's it's never it's almost never just the, just the medial part. Okay. Um, a tear trough is, is actually um, a loss of volume, so it's a, sco a scoop that we sometimes describe it under the eyes. But actually, there's not always that there, but some people just have a, a darkness of the skin, but they perceive that as, as like a perhaps a loss of, loss of tissue under the eyes. Yes, and it's, it's, it's definitely worth in your examination making sure that you've got the indication correct and mm -hmm. ruling out and discussing that out loud with your patient. Otherwise, you'll get people coming back because they were expecting something that you could never deliver, which is to remove pigment with dermal filler. Mm. Well, finally, the, the last thing that people do come in with when they think it might, they might need a tear trough treatment is actual bags as well. So I think it's infraorbital fats that, that causes this, that they might be referred to as festoons, but some people think that filler there might help, mm -hmm. but this, this isn't really the case, is it? Well, there are things you can do, but it tends not to be a tear trough treatment yeah. when, when they have excess um, subobicularis oculi fat pads, which is, which is normally what you're seeing. But there are things you can do, maybe when we get we'll on to the treatment, we can touch on that. Yeah. Okay, um, so anatomically, what, what are the, the causes of a tear trough then? So you can, you can break, as in most parts of the face, you can break this down into what are the structures that make up the area and how do each of them change. Um, I should also start, actually, that for some people, there is no change that you're born with it. And you'll see children, you know, from three years old sometimes with, with a, a little dip there or a shadow in certain light. Um, so it's, it's a normal anatomical feature. It's not necessary. It's not something you should actually always um, consider a deformity. Mm -hmm. It's sometimes called a tear trough deformity. I, I, don't, I think it's just normal <coughs> structure of the eye. Mm -hmm. um, but if that becomes something that, that decreases their perception of kind of awakeness or freshness or tiredness, or creates a sense of tiredness, then you might want to treat it. Um, but it's, it's usually caused by changes. I'd say in the, in the early part of your life, if you have one, it's about transitions between fat pads and where the ligament defines the, the border between two fat pads. So 
Um, in particular, it's the fact that you have maybe slightly less fat or a tighter orbicularis oculi retaining ligament um, near the suborbicular orbicularis oculi fat pad and um, the malar fat pad or the medial cheek compartment. So where you see that transition between those two fat pads, mm -hmm. you get a little shadow and you can sometimes successfully treat that. Now, as you get older, you, a lot of people will develop a, a tear trough for other reasons because of the, the disharmony that occurs through aging in different, in different ways as the area changes. Starting right at the bottom of, the, of what affects the area, there's bone loss. So as you lose fat, particularly uh, in females, postmenopausal females, you, it's one of the ways, interestingly, that they age skeletons is by looking at the size of the, uh, of the foramen uh, that the eye sits in. Um, and you tend to you lose bone laterally, so the actual size of the orbit gets bigger. Mm -hmm. The orbital rim, the, the turnover of bone there basically means you're, you absorb bone around the orbital rim, and it, it goes from being round to being a bit more like aviator sunglasses, mm -hmm. and you lose volume laterally. So that's more of a the lateral lid cheek junction that changes, and you get a shadow there. But that's one of the signs. But that's I've started in the wrong order. That's one of the latest things that will happen. So mm -hmm. that's for much older people. You're actually trying to accommodate for a loss of bone. Uh, on top of that, you have muscle, which at a much younger age, the contraction of orbicularis oculi will reveal a shadow. And often that's what people attend with, which is that when I smile, I get a shadow. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, there's a hypermobility there, which happens as the fat loss, as fat above it and beneath it starts to decrease. Mm -hmm. So loss of the suborbicularis oculi fat pad is, is one reason why you get a shadow, but combined with that is the fact that the muscle will then squeeze the area more and reveals the, the disharmony, basically, and creates more of a shadow during animation. Mm -hmm. um, and on top of that, you've got the skin, which will, uh, as most skin, as it gets older, you decrease laxity and it becomes less elastic um, and less able to kind of hold a kind of taut structure on top of all the other things. And you see the imperfections beneath mm -hmm. um, for a similar reason. So all of these structures are all combined together to increase the visual complexity around the eye, um, which basically detracts from the main feature, which is which is your eye, and it decreases uh, beauty or freshness. So just a couple of things to ask. So some some people do come in with very fine lines under their, their lower lid and that they're asking if a, a TIF trough treatment or Botox would help there. Do you find that they they do resolve with, with tear trough filler? Well, it, you can make a small difference, but I would never... It's more, I'd consider that more as a, a side effect of the main treatment. So I've definitely seen people with lots of little lines underneath mm -hmm. their eyes who've been, the, the fine lines can be pulled out with cheek and tear trough treatments, sometimes um, medial and lateral cheek. And this just creates a little bit of surface tension that pulls out little fine lines. Mm -hmm. And the tear trough treatment is definitely part of that. Um, but it's quite unpredictable and, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily use that as the primary indication to do the treatment. It's more kind of if you have a shadow there and your cheek is smaller and we correct those, perhaps it'll help you underneath your eyes. But um, to sell it as the main, the main reason to do the procedure might end up with a fair number of people being disappointed. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so it sounds like cheeks then, and a lot of people know this, cheeks is actually one, one of the other things we should be addressing whenever we look at tear trough. We should never neglect to look at the cheek fat pads. Yes, um, I, we, I think we teach it as the foundation of the tear trough. So mm -hmm. um, if you're considering training in this area, you should definitely do cheeks first. Make sure that you're good at doing cheeks, lateral lid cheek junction and tear trough last. And that's the order that we treat the area as well. You tend to start laterally and then move to more medial areas. Yeah, absolutely. And then lastly, Botox, because we've mentioned that orbicularis oculi muscle 
Um, it's involved a little bit with the formation of, of lines under the eyes. Um, would Botox, the normal crow's feet Botox, help with a teeter off? Do you tend to, to use that as part of the... It definitely can in some people, and you're looking for that dynamic sign that it, it worsens the tear trough. So someone who has a lot of um, upward and medial movement of the lateral part of their cheek due to contraction of orbicularis oculi, you might improve certainly the longevity of the filler that you use, but also the depth of the shadow during animation might be improved um, by, by, by adding Botox. So it is something that I recommend some of the time. Okay. Do you sometimes edge a bit more medially with your your Botox when you're doing that under the under the lid? Um, I, very ra- I very rarely do that because um, I think that what you get from that is that if you look at the face in isolation, you will see a decrease in lines when they smile and the patient will be happy. But if you look at the face holistically, quite often I see that it basically you get an associated decrease in warmth during expression yeah. and sometimes you get a medial pull because the orbicularis oculi uh, muscle is still contracting where it's attached to the medial palpebral ligament and it but it's no longer resisted laterally so you yeah. get this very quite a strange distracting medial pull which causes lines over the tear trough and uh, medial to the midcolor yeah. line and a, and a kind of pinching look where basically if you think about what you're doing there the muscles that are left functioning in your face are all the ones that that elevate your nose uh, your lip and your cheek and pull the cheek inward so there's this kind of scrunching effect of the mm-hmm. mid face if you overtreat orbicularis oculi. The tricky thing is some people don't, they don't want to hear that. You will have patients who don't want to hear the advice around the whole face. Yes. They want to get rid of the lines. The lines yeah. um, and there's a lot of conversation around that and trying to reach a balance point. So I have treated that area a lot of times, um, but, the, but I think for a lot of people there's a downside. And actually that's where, it, that's an indication to treat the, um, the tear trough sometimes is because you can reduce lines and wrinkles there without having to upset the dynamic appearance of the face. Okay, so let's move on to some of the contraindications to tear troughs. Uh, and, and I think this is a really key thing, almost more than any other part of the, the face that we're treating with fillers. So, yeah, so there's the, it's a tricky area because the skin is so thin. That's the, primarily, if you want to understand why tear troughs are difficult, it's because you have a, a dermis which is only 0.2 millimeters thick mm-hmm. and just a a centimeter down into the cheek, it's about 10 times thicker. And mm-hmm. that is why you, you see more issues in tear troughs than other areas is because there is no room for error and a little bit too much and you have puffiness and um, a little bit too little and it doesn't get you the result that you want. So the, the margins for error are small. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the contraindications are related to that. So if your patient reports, for example, one of the, the most obvious contraindications is that they have massive fluctuation in the volume of the tear trough throughout the day so in the morning they have puffy eyes and in the evening they have uh, a shadow those patients are going to be tricky to balance because if you add filler to the same area where they're puffy in the morning they're going to be more puffy Mm -hmm. Um, and then they may have maybe happy for an hour at like four o'clock in the afternoon and then they end up you know not happy again or the puffiness just persists all day long because Mm -hmm. you are either holding more moisture in the area there or you are um, decreasing the drainage. These are some of the theories people talk about. It's not actually draining as easily as it should, or it's just holding moisture all day long. So you end up um, having to reverse those. So always ask your patient, are you excessively puffy in the mornings? Does it go on until kind of 10 o'clock? Most of us have a little bit of volume retention. I know because I actually look slightly better in the mornings than I do by 11. Mm. And it's to do with, um, for me, I'm, I'm losing volume around my eyes and when I when I wake up in the mornings I have that volume for a bit 
and then it disappears. But that's not puffiness. It's just kind of, it's not an eye bag. So get so, all your selfies done first thing in the morning. That's yeah. the key lesson for you. <laughs> yeah. I think the, the people that have swelling in the mornings um, or throughout the day, it sounds like it's probably to do with lymphatics and perhaps a sluggish draining of the lymphatics in the area. That, that's one of the theories, isn't it? Yeah, that's and how it's often described. And but, but we all redistribute volume during the day, uh, during the night, and yeah. we all wake up that way. It's just that they, they either have a ligament that's holding that moisture a bit longer or lymphatic drainage is less. So it just lasts a bit longer, and it's there's a negative aspect to it in the mornings as opposed to just volume redistribution, which is normal. Mm. Okay. Um, any other contraindications or risks we should be aware of? Um, I'd be, uh, apart from all the medical side of, of any dermal filler treatment specific to around the eyes would be that they're they're not actually they don't actually have a decrease in fat they have an increase in fat those are the most common issues you've got to you've got to be able to look at the eye and decide which fat pad is causing the problem and it's either a fat pad that's in excess or it's a fat pad that is shrunk and is too small um, and actually if you if you think about the fat pads that can cause it there are there are actually a few. So you have a fat pad underneath your eye that can actually herniate out. Um, it's meant to cushion the eye, but it, it, it um, hypertrophies. Um, deeper than that, the lateral and central fat pads that actually are behind the, um, behind the orbicularis oculi okay. and behind the uh, foot, what's it called? The septum, the orbital septum. Okay. So essentially you have this fat pad that is herniating from behind the aponeurosis, the preaponeurotic fat pads that mm. push through and create underneath them a little bit of a shadow. That's one possible um, indication to treat. Now, if you have um, underneath that the sooth getting smaller, then, then that's treatable as well. Um, but sometimes those, both those fat pads are enlarged and then you have a shadow lower down in the cheek, which is, which is harder to treat unless you have fat pad loss underneath that in the, in the medial cheek compartment. Mm -hmm. So essentially, if you're in a position where the shadow is caused purely by an excess of fat, you probably can't do much about it. Mm -hmm. There are small caveats to that, which is occasionally you can you can blend in blend, a fat yeah. pad. So the, the analogy I use actually in our, in in my office, I mm -hmm. have a picture which has no frame around it. It's one of those um, canvas covered, yeah. and it's a white picture with a flower in the middle of it on a white wall, and you can't really see that. It doesn't stand out in the room in the in the in the way that it would if you had a big black um, border around it. So that's essentially what you do: is you take away the deepest part of the shadow by just gently blending it in, and it looks better. But you still have an eye bag; you're not removing an eye bag, yeah. and it's kind of a trick of the light. And that's the the, the best you can do. And it's, it'll, you only get like a maybe a fifty percent improvement. I think the key thing is knowing uh, what we can treat and which patients actually we might direct towards surgery. Mm -hmm. um, so some, I think some of the, the with severe eye bags actually uh, seeing an ophthalmic surgeon would be a more appropriate. Yeah, depending on their expectations. If there's something that needs removing, then you need to then you need a surgeon as is, is, is a good guide. Yeah. Um, I totally agree with that. And then mm. sometimes you know we really want to help patients and people try too hard, and then what you end up doing is inconveniencing them or even making things worse for them in the short term while you wait to reverse something that was just an excess of fat yeah. rather than a, a loss of volume. So the the key thing is. Is it an excess of fat or is it lost volume? If it's lost volume, you can probably help it. Sometimes you can blend it in, but basically we're looking for fat pad loss and you're being certain about which fat pad is smaller because it's a different treatment. And I'd say that that's actually one of the more common mistakes I see people make is they have tear trough in their mind instead mm -hmm. of periorbital rejuvenation. And they think, 
there's a shadow immediately so i'm going to stick some volbella into that area and actually what if you look from the side there's a part of your assessment if you look at the profile of someone's face someone's face you can often see much more clearly than looking straight ahead that what they really have is loss of the deep medial fat pad or the mallet the mallet cheek compartment yeah the medial cheek compartment um and it's a it's medial fat pad loss in the cheek that underneath a normal um, amount of sooth looks like a shadow and that's actually easier to treat use a cannula use something thicker like volift yeah um, and less complications probably than tear trough and and it, but your patient will book in for tear trough when they need medial cheek yeah agree treating that gives an instant improvement doesn't it for a lot of people yeah. and it also helps because i think it comes across that you're not trying to make a sale i, I often actually say well why don't we start with cheeks because we're going to get some improvement here if you're happy you don't actually need a tear trough treatment but if you're still seeing a bit of a shadow under your eye then perhaps we could then proceed yeah. but combining the two is, is our ideal yeah i like that and i also think that's a really good tip that you should look for opportunities to do to do less and explain to your patient that that's what you're doing because it's massively trust building they get a better result for less effort and they'll that and everyone the world's a better place it's always a good mm. a good way to, to operate i don't know if this would come in under contraindications but the thing i thought would be worth mentioning is people with expectations about changing skin color uh, we do know that um, like the Asian population, for example, generally have a darker skin under the eyes. Um, and I know I've treated several clients who expect that the skin color will change before I started and really drilling that into them that no, this won't change the actual skin color. It has the illusion of it being less dark because it's the skin, if you're lifting it, it's going to catch more light. Mm -hmm. But some people have actually really struggled to, to comprehend that no, we're not actually going to change the skin color. Yeah. Is that something that you've, you've noticed? Yeah, I, th I think the way you describe it is quite quite good, and actually that that sense of pessimism is okay in this situation, but because mm -hmm. it's so hard to it's so hard to be certain about how much difference that will make. Now, the reality is actually it's actually pretty good. Mm -hmm. If you even if you have dis if you have discoloration plus a shadow, I think there's a synergistic effect between those two, mm -hmm. and if you lighten one, you get a disproportion. You get a perception of improvement of both. Yeah, um, but that's quite a hard thing to gauge. So yeah. the best thing to say is. You have pigment i can't help with that yeah. you have a shadow that will help a little bit do you still want to go ahead given that and then the result is more often than not better than they think which is always the way you want it to be Absolutely. rather than the other way around yeah but you're right there's something interesting around um this this i uh, if you've if our listeners have ever heard of having your colors read there's something dr sharon has a a friend who does who does color reading they're looking at basically the tints of color within your face okay um, and how that how you basically can choose clothes that make you look better and one of the interesting subtleties of that is if you choose colors of clothes that are similar to the shadows in your face it pulls the shadows out you can actually look older in different color clothes right. um, which makes sense to me it's almost it's the same way as if you have you know blue eyes and you wear a blue top your eyes stand out more uh -huh. If you have a shadow and you choose colors yeah. that are close to that shadow, it almost draws them out as well, so you can look mm -hmm. older. But similarly, the right clothes can make you look younger as well. We could start a Skin Viva clothing business alongside. <laughs> um, it, it takes an hour and a half to have your colors read, so um, it's quite a long, drawn-out really? process. But it's, uh, okay. yeah, it's, it's, in, it's interesting, and it makes sense to me as well, kind of the way your brain works and, uh -huh. and sees these things. Right. Um, but there's something in that with with lightening the shadows that I, I think there's that's why you get a synergistic effect that you take the shadow out then the the pigment also looks disproportionately better i think there's something going on with that okay so just very briefly about choice of products we've already mentioned volbella we're not going to want to use anything much thicker in the in the actual tear trough itself do you agree 
So yeah, it's all down to not attracting moisture. So we have, you want to choose something that attracts the least amount of moisture so that you don't have this post-procedural puffiness that sometimes mm -hmm. needs reversal. Volbella, uh, that's my product of preference. Tear Silver Density 2 is a really good, well-respected product as well. But yeah. I would look for the company backing them and look for a company that's, that, that is well-established um, because they'll have much more data on it and they'll have more of a reputation to lose. So that we, that's one of the reasons I like companies that have got some FDA approval, even though most of their products may not. If they're that type of company who's going to try and get FDA approval, they'll hopefully be a bit more reliable. But definitely don't use products that aren't specifically designed for the tear trough or your reversal rate will be high. Yes, okay. Now moving on to technique. Uh, this is an area where knowing how to use a cannula is very useful. Um, you can combine needle and cannula. I think some people may only use a needle. Um, from your experience, what have you found works best over the years? So I love using a cannula because I don't get bruising as anywhere near as much. And a bruise around the eye is awful. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's associated, the social impact is, you know, my husband's hit me or I've been drunk mm -hmm. or I've, you know, there's something that's, that's yeah, the yeah. story people worry that their neighbors will say about them. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, that's why I like cannula, but cannulas um, have limitations too. So it's less traumatic, it's less painful. Um, and in some people it's great, but in others, it, the chance of getting post-procedural puffiness is higher. And that's because it's very hard to get it as deep, certainly without it being traumatic anyway. Um, so what you tend to do is you're mixing filler with the souf in the tear trough. And that's often fine, but sometimes the movement of the lower lid um, and the way that the filler interacts with the ligament, you start to see a bulge just near that that ligament yeah um, and then you then you have a problem with post-procedural puffiness that may actually creates a shadow that you're trying to treat so in those cases it's sometimes good to use a needle and go all the way down to periosteum and put the filler underneath the fat and that can give you a more reliable um, good persistent result but at the expense of bruising so yeah. that's the choice that you're making I'm, I'm probably certainly what what happens with practitioners is that you do one you, you start out with needles, you, you then try cannula and you think this is great, and then you start to get follow-ups, and then you go back to it and in between. So that's, yes. that's where, where I am at the moment, which is I probably use um, cannula 70% of the time, and then I'm getting good at spotting the ones where you, you really don't want to add any volume at all uh, to the fat pad, and you use a needle for those. Yeah. Uh, very briefly, we haven't touched on just the safety aspects. So um, medially, uh, we've got the angular artery, which is obviously an absolute... Um, no go so I, I tend to mark out where, where the angular artery would lie and make sure I'm going anywhere near that area well firstly I do stay away but it would always be with a cannula so needles must stay well away from that and then also you've got the infraorbital artery as well um, which I believe is in line with the uh, medial limbus of the iris and then it's about a centimeter down from the infraorbital rim so again I tend to mark that with a, a red pencil so I'm using a needle that I'm going to stay well away and aspiration as always yeah I like that idea of marking it, getting it clear visually. The other thing you can mark out is the uh, is the orbit, because I know from training people that they the orbital rim, they sometimes confuse it with the tear trough, and they start to treat a shadow that's actually caused that's actually on the border between the eyeball and and the bone, which is yeah. not a place where you want to put a needle. Yeah. So mark out those areas before you start. Yeah. Okay, and then just moving on to, I mean, we've already touched on it, follow up and complications. So. Um, we've talked about swelling if, if Phil has been put in the fat pad in, in the souf and it's just showing uh, lumpiness so what, what what do we what do we see and what are the causes so the, the number one uh, follow-up is going to be puffiness so it's it may look good on the day and then two or three days later or a week later they suddenly come back and say mm. now I have puffiness and some of that 
sometimes it's actually the first few days and then it fades. So I wouldn't rush into reversing anything. It's only been there for two or three days. Give it some time. Um, after that, you have the, the puffiness that comes. And this can actually come even years later. So I've seen someone mm. who's pretty happy with the result and then three years later started to get puffiness from it dissolved that and it was it almost vanished instantly and i mm. think there's something around filler slowly breaking down attracting a bit more moisture um that then causes post-procedural puffiness that might be years after the event um but they're, they're actually quite easy to solve so long as they're not allergic to hyaluronidase then you just put a drop in and it dissolves quite quickly mm -hmm. the other thing that i've seen um sometimes from delegates um sometimes from other clinicians it might be people from other clinics that have come here um that if filler has perhaps been injected a bit too quickly, so if there's not that control with the cannula, um, and especially when using such a soft product like Volbella, it can come out very quickly. And then, like we talked about, it's such an unforgiving area. So even if there's 0.05 too much in one little area or too superficially, it can show. And it's not always easy to massage out. Yeah, you can't always massage it. I totally agree. And that technique to continuously hone your technique so that you're not just putting a lump of filler, but you're actually creating a a kind of structure that's smoothly spread and well integrated that takes practice um, i call it like a painting technique so you yeah. have lots of multiple thin layers with a cannula if you're using one yeah okay um, any other complications that that tend to arise i think it's i mean that that dominates virtually all of them the, the, the others yeah. are s similar to what you might get in other places but i don't think it's a particularly high risk area for you know blocked arteries and things like that i mean if you're getting all the way to the angular artery you're not treating what i would call the tear trough you know yeah. you're quite you're, quite, Agreed, you're yeah. extremely medial so i don't think blocking the angular artery if you if you're injecting the tear trough normally should be on the list yeah. um any more than you know any freak other you know uh, incidents of things but it's not a common outcome at all yeah. um so I would call that by far the most important. Bru bruising, and it's not really a complication, it's, it's kind of one of the normal side effects. Yeah. Um, there is a rare, and it really should never happen, which is injecting filler through the, um, through the aponeurotic membrane and, and into the orbit. You apparently get inflammation that persists and persists um, and, uh, until, you, until you reverse it. Okay. Um, but that really, you really, you've got your geography a bit wrong <laughs> if, you're, if you're there. I suppose it does happen, but. Yeah, okay. Fine, so that wraps up tear troughs and I, th I think that was, uh, hope well, hopefully that will be useful for people to hear as an introduction to it. Um, it is a great area to treat. Um, it really allows you to be holistic um, when you're doing cheeks, recommending it. It's a, a, it's a treatment that's in high demand. A lot of clients come and ask for it. So useful one to, to have some awareness of. So just before we finish, Tim, if you could give us our consultation hack of the week. Well, relating to what we said earlier about um, looking for keywords, it's, it's the keyword uh, in the golden minute, we call it in, in general practice, the golden minute, which is when you just let your patient free wheel for the first minute of a consultation and just see what they say. Uh, and you can, there's actually a lot of information there if you look out for it or if you open with a good question. If you say, what treatment would you like today? It's not, not going to be very useful. If you say, what's made you seek treatment today? You may get a story which might say, have certain keywords. And I basically now instantly link certain keywords with certain treatments. So tiredness is a brow lift or a tear trough. You know, um, sagginess is probably going to involve cheeks. Mm -hmm. um, you're basically looking over time to, to, to develop in your mind a treatment plan that's most likely to work with the words that they are using to describe their problem and then to use those words back at them when you start to talk about treatment plans. So you're linking the two together. It'll resonate with them because they're their words and you'll, you'll, you'll design a treatment that's specifically around what they are perceiving. This is a, a, a skill that we both probably learned a little bit as we're training to be GPs as well. Um, and it did take some time for me personally to 
um, really acknowledge a word that's been said while you're listening, but acknowledge it, park it for a minute until they've finished and then go back to you some of the words they've used. Mm-hmm. And it really makes people feel understood and listened to, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think the reason you struggle as a GP is there's no time to do that. <laughs> yeah. um, so you, you really don't want to get to the problem of making sure they're not going to die and move and then move on. Mm. Um, <laughs> whereas the, the luxury of, that we have yes. in a private setting is that you actually have time to do that Absolutely. and then you really experience the power of it and I actually still bring that I bring that more to my general practice now than I did before because mm-hmm. I it actually saves you time if you invest it in the in the short term in mm-hmm. the long term it saves you time yeah absolutely that's really useful thank you uh, so that wraps up today's podcast thank you very much for listening we're really enjoying recording these um, I hope you're finding them very useful we'd really appreciate some feedback so uh, please feel free to give us a review and uh, any uh, feedback would be welcomed Yep. Um, Adam in particular has got lots of ideas that he'd like to improve it even more, but we'd love some shape, some shaping from you guys. So let us know what you think, um, what you'd like more of, um, what you'd like less of. Um, we don't mind negatives. Um, in fact, that's what we'll improve it with probably yeah, the most. So absolutely. let us know and we'd be very grateful for that. I'd be quite interested to do um, sort of a Q&A where we could read out some of the listeners' questions as well um, on one of these podcasts. So if you do have any questions, please write them down and send them in and we'll, we'll certainly get to them at some point. Okay, great. Great, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.